Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. There are 168 hours in a week. On average, you probably spend about seven to eight hours a night sleeping, hopefully. I don't know about you, but I slept well last night. I don't think I woke up from the time I fell asleep till the time I woke up this morning. I don't think I woke up any other time, and that hardly ever happens. I asked my wife, did you sleep well as well? I don't think I woke up once, did you? So for some reason, she looked at me out of the top of her head because Miles was up several times. But I slept well right through it. So on average in a week, we probably sleep, I don't know, let's say 50 hours right, in a, in a given week. That leaves you with roughly, if there's 168 hours in a week, that leaves you with roughly 118 hours awake per week. Very rough, probably. On average, we will probably work a paying job at least 40 hours of that week for those that are in the, in the workforce. That means that over one-third of your waking hours in a given week are potentially spent at your job, sometimes a whole lot more than that depending on the week and depending on what's going on. I don't know about you, but that's a huge chunk of your life, isn't it? That a third or probably more in most cases of your waking hours, over a third of them are spent in some sort of work or employment. And if you think about it, much of our work or employment is about relating to people, isn't it? Whether that's customers, whether that's children that you work with, co-workers, your boss, or maybe your employees if you are the boss or the employer. And for some people, that can be a place of great enjoyment. They love those people. They love their work. They love that time there. For others, sometimes not so much. It can be a place of great drudgery, can't it? You feel like you're stuck on a hamster wheel because you're making money at a place you don't like to a place you don't like to live a life you don't enjoy because you don't like work. And you're stuck in this vicious cycle. For some, the workplace, because of relationships, is a place of great contention, isn't it? Not really getting along with the boss or, or the coworkers or the customers sometimes. And it brings us to questions like this, is work a necessary evil? Is it something that we just kind of have to buck up and, and do it? Is the workplace and the people at that workplace, is it to just be endured begrudgingly so that we can live the rest of our life and hopefully enjoy something there? Or can work and the environment of work be redeemed? And if, if it can be redeemed, how can it be redeemed? Does the Bible speak to this area of my life? Is there instruction in the Bible for the workforce and for the workplace? And I would say, absolutely. Absolutely. The Bible is not silent about the workplace and the workforce. Cast your eyes to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. And here in Scripture, through the Apostle Paul, it gives us helpful instruction for work relationships that work. Work relationships that work. Now remember, we're, we're, we're still in this section uh, starting in Ephesians 5.18, where it said that we are to be controlled by or submitted to the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. That submission to the Spirit also means then, 521, that we are to submit to one another in the fear of God, Ephesians 521. 
And we've seen that play out in many different scenarios. Wives submit, 522. Husbands submit. Children submit. Parents submit. And here in verses 5 to 9, we continue that theme. Those who work are to submit. And those who oversee work as a boss or an employer are also to submit. There's a theme running here. Have you seen it? Wherever you go, whatever stage in life you're in, you will never outrun submission. You will always have to submit to somebody, to something. Our highest authority, obviously, the Lord. But there will always be some form of submission that you will have to have. In Ephesians 5 and 6, we've seen this over and over, our human relations are always tied to our heavenly relationships. Because all human submission that we will have in every area of our lives is also always submission to Christ. It always has has submission to Christ as its ultimate end. You are submitting here, but you're submitting, as verse 521 says, to one another in the fear of God. Wives, verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 22, you submit as to the Lord. Husbands, you are to love just as Christ does. Children are to obey. How? In the Lord. Parents are to bring up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. So all of our human relationships here, submitted to Christ, submitted to others, ultimately have in mind a a heavenly relationship. You know, nothing changes as we come to our work relationships. That theme doesn't change in verses 5 to 9. Let's read Ephesians 6 verses 5 to 9. Then we'll talk about it. He says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. You see the same theme? Verse 5, submit to masters as to Christ. Verse 6, serve as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, do your service as to the Lord. Verse 9, masters, remember your true master and, and those under you, their true master is in heaven. Every relationship we have is submission to one another in the fear of the Lord. Every single relationship we have, we've seen that submission to others as we submit to Christ, that human relationship built upon a heavenly relationship. And that includes here the employee-employer relationship, the boss-worker relationship, and here the, the, the context in which it's given is the master-slave relationship of the first century. That's the era in which Paul is writing. And before we go any further, I kind of want to address the the elephant in the room as we read this passage. Because in our New King James Bibles, we read that Paul is addressing this to bond servants, verse 5. But that is the Greek word douloi, which is the word for slave. Some of you in your translations, you may have the word slave there, where it says slaves be obedient. 
Paul is specifically addressing here that slave-master relationship that was extremely prevalent in Greek and Roman culture at that time. In the time that period that Paul would have been writing, the first century, there were an estimated 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at that time. Ephesus was a very Roman city. And estimates, estimates say that at least one-third of the population in Ephesus were probably slaves. So we have to ask a few important questions to understand this. What did slavery look like at this time? And what do we make of Paul's comments about it? How, how do we work through this master-slave relationship? And then also, how does it apply to us? Well, in the first century, as is usually the case with slavery, slaves were considered property of their owners, their masters. They owned them. Their rights were limited. And in all all forms of this, all forms of relationships, really, many were taken advantage of. Many were harmed. However, at this point in the first century, Rome had also made a lot of uh, reforms to slave law that greatly helped the slaves, increased their their opportunity, benefited the slaves at this point in time. We have to be careful here because when we hear slave or slavery, our first thought is what? We go to the horrors of chattel slavery in the 1600s to 1800s of America, of Africa, of Europe. Right? That's the first place our, our mental image takes us is to that type of slavery. And that type of slavery was brutal. It was wrong. It should be harshly denounced. In every form of that type of slavery, it was wrong. However, slavery in first century Rome did not look like that. Now, were some people taken advantage of? Absolutely. Were some people harmed? Yes, that happens in every relationship. But it's not exactly the same type of slavery that we have in mind here. Many slaves in first century Rome were a social class of people instead of a race-based system of oppression and forced labor. Most of the time with slaves, slavery was not in this, in this century, in this time that Paul is writing, it was not based on race. And there were no distinguishing marks or characteristics that you could say, oh, I'm looking at a slave here and I'm looking at a free man here. Many slaves at this time were slaves because they had actually sold themselves into slavery. You say, why on earth would somebody do that? Well, culture was different then. Many people would sell them into sl- themselves into slavery in order to become a Roman citizen because their master who they would be under was a Roman citizen. Sometimes they would sell themselves into slavery actually to improve their standard of life. Much different from other forms of slavery that we might be familiar with. In this era, most slaves only served a a portion of their lives, some only seven years. Most slaves were eventually set free. Even though the slave was his master's possession at this time, the slave himself could still own property, and he controlled his own property, and some slaves even owned other slaves. That's a little different. But they could invest in their property, they could invest their money, and eventually buy their freedom. Many slaves actually didn't even live with their masters. They worked for their masters as slaves. They were their master's property, but they actually lived on their own, working for their master's profit until their contract was up. Slaves at this time held various jobs, good jobs, not just hard labor jobs like we think of with slavery. Many were teachers, physicians, bankers, and shopkeepers. So when you get, I'm trying to paint a picture here that's a little bit different than maybe what we think of with slavery. Were, those who were, were there those slaves at this time who were taken advantage of? Absolutely. Were there some that were harmed and mistreated? 
Absolutely. But slavery as described here in first century was not the barbaric slave trade of earlier America. That was obviously wrong. In every stretch of the imagination, that was wrong. It was the exploitation and inhumane treatment of people made in the image of God. And the Bible would condemn that at every turn. Here in the first century, Paul, though, is speaking to Christian slaves and Christian masters. And Paul says for slaves, in Ephesians 6, to obey their masters and for masters to treat their slaves with kindness. So hopefully kind of painting that picture of what first century slavery would have looked like, that context helps us to explain some of Paul's comments here. Paul is not saying to the slaves that he's talking to here, he's not saying to Christians in general that Christians, your duty, your job in this is to overthrow the social structures of your day and upend all order. He takes a different tack. He goes in a different direction, much like Jesus did. Remember Jesus when he came to earth? Everybody thought he was here to do what? Overthrow Rome. He's here to change the social order of things and overthrow Rome. But yet Jesus didn't do that. He actually came for a much bigger purpose. He came to address the spiritual needs of his people more so than the social needs of his people. And so Paul here, kind of following that that paradigm, Paul's comments are not an overthrow of social systems. Rather, it is a plea to the heart of believers to live Christ-like lives no matter what condition you're in. What position, what social class you're in, live a life for Christ. Now, qualifier, does that mean that as a Christian, you should not try to improve your condition if you can or help someone else improve their condition if they can? Is that what that means? No, you certainly can. You certainly have that freedom. In 1 Corinthians 7, a very helpful passage, Paul says, if you're a slave, be a slave for the glory of God paraphrasing, if you can become free, do it and do it to the glory of God. So what is he saying here? Paul's saying in, in, in broad strokes, he's saying that scripture's main concern is not your social condition. Scripture's main concern is your heart condition. That's the key. Now, Paul is not condoning slavery. People, people say that about Paul. Well, you know, slavery. No, he's not condoning slavery. Certainly not the chattel slavery of about 200 years ago in American history. Nor does Paul condone upheaving social systems. Because what is he driving at? He's driving at the true beauty of Christianity. He's driving here at what Christianity truly is, and that is that it can thrive in any situation. Christianity can thrive in any situation, whether in freedom or in bondage. Christianity lives because of Christ. Our hope is there. Whether under a tyranny or under a democracy, Christianity lives. Why? Because of Christ. Because that's where our hope is. Christians can thrive on the bottom of the social system or they can thrive on the top of the social system. The social system is not what makes the Christian successful. The relationship with Christ is what makes the Christian successful and glorify him. Warren Wearsby says this. I think this quote is helpful. He says, The Christian faith does not bring about harmony by easing social or cultural distinctions. Servants are still servants when they trust Christ. And masters are still masters. Rather, the Christian faith brings harmony by working in the heart. 
That's important. So you say, well, where does that leave us? How do we look at this passage, which says slaves and masters, bond servants, masters? How do we look at this passage in a 21st century American context? I don't know about you, but the master-slave relationship isn't really one that we have a whole lot of connection to in our current environment, right? So, So what should be our application of the principles of this passage? And I would say, and I think most scholars would say this regarding this passage, probably our closest and best application of this passage is in our work relationships. Whether you are an employee or an employer, whether you are are the, the grunt laborer on the very bottom, or you are the boss and the owner of the organization, you'll find that the biblical principles that Paul gives us here for the slave and the master, they have a lot of overlap to those working relationships as well. And hopefully this will be a help for us as we look through, first of all, in verses five to eight, instruction for employees. Ephesians 6, five to eight, instruction for employees. As you head to work tomorrow, remember these instructions. He says first to employees, he says, be obedient. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Who are we to obey? Our masters according to the flesh. What does that mean? Simply means your human or earthly masters according to the flesh, the ones that you are under here on earth. That also, though, implies for us a temporary relationship, right? Because he says your master's according to the flesh, meaning they won't always be your master. And that happens, you know, sometimes as we switch a job or move to a different area of the country. But think about this. It also means eventually we're going on to eternity. We're not going to have a human master over us. It's going to be an eternal, a heavenly master, right? Our master, our true master is heavenly and eternal, not here according to the flesh. He tells us also, how are we are supposed to obey? He says, with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. We first look at that and it kind of says, oh, we're supposed to be scared of them, right? That's not what he means here. He doesn't mean to be frightened or, or scared of them. Rather, he means treat them with a healthy level of respect. If you're under someone else, if they are your boss or your employer, there's a healthy level of respect that they deserve simply because of their position of leadership over you. That's what he's driving at here. He says that again in 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. 1 Timothy 6, 1. He says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. See how he ties again the human relationship to a heavenly reality? He ties it to your testimony and the testimony of Christ. He says here, also obey your masters in sincerity of heart. Sincerity, be genuine. Don't be hypocritical. Be real. Don't be fake. And then he says here at the end of verse five, as to Christ. So you actually obey people as you would obey Christ. You obey people with the respect and obedience that you would also give to Christ. That's a little tough sometimes, isn't it? Because there are some bosses, there are some employees, there are some co-workers that haven't necessarily earned your respect, have they? It's hard to respect them. But think about this. Christ has earned your respect. He has. And he is your real master. And so by submitting to those that maybe haven't earned your respect, you are submitting to Christ who has earned your respect. 
So tie that human relationship to a heavenly relationship. And it might give us a better opportunity to do what we are called to do here. That would be very similar to where it says in Ephesians 5.22 that wives are to submit to their husbands. How? As to the Lord. As to Christ. Kind of the same relationship that might be in mind there. So our heavenly relationship is the motivation for our earthly relationships. That's the term there, as to Christ. The term as to, the phrase as to Christ there also helps as a qualifier for our obedience. Think about it. He says, be obedient to these people as you would be to Christ, which helps us then to realize we obey these people only as we can obey Christ, which means what? If they command something that's illegal or immoral, or against the instruction of Scripture, we do not have to obey that. Why? Because you cannot obey that command that is immoral and at the same time be obeying as to Christ. You can't do both things. So this as to Christ phrase serves as a qualifier for our obedience. We see another one at the end of verse 6. He says, doing the will of God from the heart. That's another phrase along these same lines. You can't do the will of God while doing evil, right? You can't do the will of God from the heart and evil at the same time. Therefore, you must disobey the illegal or immoral commands because your ultimate obedience is to Christ. We've been reminded of that. Wives are reminded of that in their submission to their husbands as it is to the Lord. Children, obey your parents as it is in the Lord. So we've seen that in other relationships in this section as well, that we have to apply that Acts 5.29 principle. We have to do that with government sometimes. We have to do that with relationships. That Acts 5.29 principle is you must obey God rather than men. Yet, like with the apostles in Acts, when they obeyed God rather than men, they suffered for it. They suffered for obeying God instead of the men who were telling them what to do or what not to do in that instance. 1 Peter 2 verses 18 to 20, and hopefully you get an opportunity to talk about this a little bit more in your growth groups later. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20 reminds us that in these instances where we must disobey, we must also be willing to take the punishment. And what do we say? That's not fair. That's not fair. Well, think about it. You earned it because you disobeyed. Therefore, you have to endure it. But... You earned it for doing good. Therefore, you look like Christ. Do you deserve the punishment? Well, yeah, you do. You disobeyed. Might not seem fair, but earning punishment for doing good, you look like Christ. Because what do we know about Christ? He suffered unjustly. He suffered unjustly for our sins. He, the thief on the cross, remember that? He, he, he realized that. The one thief, he says, hey, I realize we're here. I think he was actually, he was actually uh, rebuking the other thief. He said, hey, shut up. We deserve to be here. This man does, has done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve to be here. See, the thief got it. He realized that they were getting what they deserve for their sins, but this man was actually being punished. Jesus was actually being punished for something he didn't do. He was being punished for being good. And so when we also are punished, when we disobey a command that is illegal or immoral or against the instruction of Scripture, we look like Christ when we take that punishment willingly, when we are patient in that. 
Look at verse six. We see the second instruction for employees. He says, please God, not men. He says, you obey those who are your masters, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Please God, not men. Good employees work for the right reasons. The word eye service here means to serve with a view to impressing others. Are you that person sometimes? We're probably all guilty of it at times. You think through your coworkers and other people, and you can probably think of those people that fall into that category, right? The ones who serve with a view to impressing others. What is a man pleaser? He says, don't, be, don't do it with eye service as men pleasers. What is a man pleaser? It's someone who, someone who, who wants to catch the eye of others. They, they, work, they work when others are watching. Men, they are good when others are watching, but they slack off when they're on their own. There's nobody around to please. It's fine. They do just enough to keep people happy, but they seldom go above and beyond. Nor do they think of what ultimately pleases God. In the end, they are hypocrites. They're inauthentic. Paul says, don't, don't be that person. As a believer, you are called to a higher standard because you are a bondservant of Christ. We work realizing we are servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Not ultimately to get the attention of people, but ultimately to please God. See, the work you do without regard for being noticed is the work that is noticed by God. The work that you do without regard to being noticed by others is the work that is truly done for the right reason, and that is what is noticed by God. Here in verse 7, he says something very similar, though slightly different. He said, please God, not men, verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Serve God, not men. Serve God, not others, not people. In verse 7, he says the same thing as he does in verse 6. He just says it a little bit differently here. He says, we must maintain a focus on the higher calling of serving Christ. That's our higher calling. That's what we are supposed to be focused on here. You're not here for people, you're here for Christ. And if we focus on who we actually serve, maybe that takes away a little bit of the drudgery when we go into work tomorrow. Because ultimately we're not here to serve these people and to, to make this paycheck and to, to, to get some sort of a claim here. Ultimately we're here for a much higher and better purpose. We ultimately serve Christ, not people. Our scripture reading in Colossians, it said basically the same thing. He said, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. We ultimately serve Christ, not people. Yet, yet, in order to serve Christ, what? We have to serve people. So we ultimately serve Christ, not people, yet in order to serve Christ, we must serve people. It would be wrong to say, well, I don't serve people. I serve Christ. Well, it sounds really spiritual, but it would be actually be wrong to live that way. You see what I'm getting at here? It sounds very spiritual. I don't serve people. I serve Christ. But you can't actually live that way because we can't serve Christ and ignore people at the same time. 
So how do we hold this in balance here? What do we do with this? Besides, think about this. How do you serve Christ if you don't serve people? Ever thought about that? How do you actually serve Christ if you don't serve people? Have you ever prepared a meal for Jesus when he was sick and taken it to him? Have you mowed Jesus' grass when he wasn't feeling so well? Maybe, you know, his, was ill? You know, instead of giving your offering to the church, you know, I'm super spiritual, I mail mine to 100 Heaven Street. You can't do that. There, there, there's, there's, I can't think of a way where we can actually directly serve. You know what, you see what I'm saying here? We can't directly serve Christ. I can't take him a meal. I can't, I can't send him money. I can't, so... Therein lies the problem. Our, our goal is not to please and serve people. Our goal is to please and serve Christ. Yet we can't please and serve Christ until we serve people. Matthew 25, verses 40 to 45. Matthew 25, Jesus said, Whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. That's how we serve Christ. Your service to Christ will always look like service to others. Your service to Christ will always look like service to others. So our actions are toward other people. Our attitude of service is toward Christ. I put this on the board because some people are visual learners, right? just to try to understand this a little bit. Us and our service goes to others. Ultimately, though, it is what? Service to Christ. But we can't draw a direct line from us to Christ. That service to Christ has to go through other people. That's how God has made us. That's the opportunities God has given to us. People are the conduit for us to serve Christ. What does that tell us about people? They're important to Christ. Because he didn't have to set it up that way, I guess. But he wants us to serve other people. He wants us to fellowship with others. So when you go tomorrow and you obey and serve your unbelieving boss, guess what? You obey and serve Christ. You do. When you love your wife, guys, you love Christ. Wives, when you submit to your husband, you submit to Christ. When children obey parents, they obey Christ. When you pray for someone, you serve Christ. When you share the gospel with someone, you serve Christ. Once again, that shows us how valuable people are because Christ is so connected to his people. No one is a throwaway person. I want to serve that person. If you don't serve that person, you're not serving Christ. No one is a throwaway person. All people are made in the image of God and our service to them is ultimately service to Christ because Christ is so connected to his people. You know what it also helps us with? It reminds us that even if our service is rejected by people, because that can happen sometimes, right? We try to serve others, we try to help them and they reject that. Even when they reject it, we have still served Christ. It help, helps, keeps us humble because their response to our service is not in our hands. I can offer service and help to someone. If they refuse it, I can't control that. And ultimately, that's not what matters. But rather, I have been faithful to Christ, faithful to love them and faithful to serving Christ. That keeps me humble 
Because I can't, I can't demand their response. I can't, I can't uh, figure out their response even sometimes. Sometimes their response is completely out of left field. But yet my faithfulness is not necessarily to them. My faithfulness is to Christ through them. You say, okay, how do we do this practically then? How do we serve Christ by serving others? I would say that your church is going to play a huge part in that. Now, is the church the only way to serve others? No, not saying that. But I would, I would, I would submit to you that I think it is probably the best on-ramp for your service to others. How do I serve? How do I connect with people? How do I serve people? That are, how do I do this? Your church is probably your best on-ramp for service, right? To connect you to people that are in need, to connect us to a community through other people and in community with people. And we see that happen all the time in this church. When someone has a need, people make a meal. They go and visit. They send a card. They give a gift. And it's an encouragement and a blessing to that person. When a trial comes in somebody's life, people gather to pray. When the grass is mowed here at the church or the snow is shoveled, that's serving Christ by serving other people. That's a blessing to people. Many of you ladies and some guys too serve in the nursery or in children's ministry. That's a blessing to parents. That's a service to others through the church. Here just a month or two ago, we, we packed 271 shoe boxes, never meeting the kids that will get those gifts, but serving them in that way. Volunteering at an evangelistic event is serving Christ by, by sharing Christ with others. And so I mean, you could go on and on and on with different ways of how to do that. And I think my point in that is to say that your church is probably your biggest on-ramp to that. Not the only one, but probably your most accessible and easiest on-ramp to that. So I want to tell you about something here that we put together as a way to encourage us to practically serve Christ by serving others. Put this together just recently, and it's a ministry opportunities booklet. All right, ministry opportunities. And in here is a description of over 50 ways, over 50 ways that you can serve others through the church. You can look through there. They're, they are uh, categorized in different ways, hospitality and fellowship, adult ministries, office and administration, youth ministries, children's ministries, Wayside Christian School, Blast Wednesday night, Sunday service, music and worship, all sorts of different categories. And there are over 50 different opportunities for you to see that's how I can serve others through the church. There's also, and we're going to pass these out at the end of service, so everybody's going to get their hands on one of these. There's also in there... A, a half sheet form, and it looks like basically a checklist. And it's all the, all the ministries that are described in here on this form, simply so you can put your name on the top and check off what you might be interested in as a way to communicate to the office, communicate to the pastoral staff, this is a way that I want to help out. I want to be involved in this church. Next time this comes up, call on me, help me. And so I encourage you, as you have the opportunity to look through this and use that checklist, fill that out. You can turn it into the office. You can, you can fold it and put it in the offering boxes, any of that. Here's the reason. One of the expectations of members of Wayside Chapel based on the covenant, our membership covenant, and I would extend that even further to an expectation of people who regularly attend Wayside Chapel is not just attendance, but participation 
in the service of Christ to others. I can't, I, I want to say it extremely forcefully, but I want to say it with kindness as well. Everyone should be involved in some way. No one is in the stands watching. Everyone should be able to look through those and find at least a couple ways, if not many ways, to serve others, serve Christ through the church. Our growth group leaders are prepared to uh, have that in your growth groups and talk through some of that and encourage your involvement in service to Christ. Like I said, the ushers will be passing those out afterwards. Get your hands on one of those and, and let us know how you want to serve in the church. We have to be serving others through serving Christ. Let's look at the next uh, thing he gives for employees here, the fourth one in verse eight. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. God rewards those who serve him. God rewards those who serve him. When you work, you'll get a paycheck for your work, and that's good. That's necessary, right? You kind of have to have that to survive. Nothing wrong with that at all. But those who serve Christ with the right heart will receive rewards from God that make your paycheck look like dirt. Those who work for God with the right reasons in serving Christ and serving others will get rewards in heaven eternally that make your paycheck look like dirt. That's what we ultimately work for. God rewards those who serve him. In verse nine, Paul switches gears a little bit and he talks to employers He says, verse 9, And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Not everyone works for the company. Someone has to own it. Someone has to operate it. Someone has to manage it. Right? Someone has to be the boss. How then are those people supposed to treat those who work for them? And, and you know, that's probably one of the most contentious relationships sometimes is that, that master-servant or boss-worker relationship that we have. So Paul says to employers, to bosses as it were, to masters, he says these things. He says, first, do the same things. Well, that's a sweeping statement, isn't it? What things? Well, what he's saying is do the same things or to have the same spirit as I just told the employees to have, the things they are supposed to do. What were those things? Respect, sincerity of heart, treat them as you would Christ, do the will of God from the heart. Bosses, you can't do the will of God from the heart and be a tyrant at the same time. Can't be. He says here in verse nine, don't threaten or abuse them. You say, but I'm over them. I'm in charge of them. They work for me. I get to tell them what to do. No, they don't work for you. They work for the Lord. Ultimately, they work for the Lord. And that's why he says in the middle of verse 9, he says, remember, you serve the same master. He says, your own master also is in heaven. Literally translated, that means your master and theirs. He says, your master and their master is also in heaven. The master and the slave, the boss and the worker have the same master. He is the master of masters. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. That's ultimately who we have our allegiance to. 
Colossians 4.1, which we read earlier, he said, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Remember that song we sang earlier? I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. Employees that work for you do not belong to you. They belong to the Lord. They are his. They are under his sovereignty, not necessarily yours. Therefore, the earth, earthly master should not think of himself as some sort of some big, big man with some great power. No, he thinks of himself as a servant of the true master, and he submits himself to that master and to the good of those who work for him. You must treat those under you the same way your master above you would treat them. And then he says God has no partiality. There is no partiality with God. He is over the master and the slave. He is over the boss and the worker. And when you stand before God, you will stand before God as you, not as a slave, not as a master. You will be held accountable, though, for what you do in those things. Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no partiality with God. As we review these verses just briefly, they give us the right mindset for our work. Think back with me. We work not to earn value in the workplace, but because we have value with our heavenly master. We don't work for the praise of others. We work to bring Christ praise. We don't rule as domineering masters. Rather, we oversee as stewards of God's riches. We work not just for the here and now of earthly rewards. We work for the there and then of eternal rewards. Christian, your workplace behavior may be some of your most important and most public behavior. That's true. It may make the most difference for Christ or do the most harm. And whether you are an employer or an employee, you will have believers and unbelievers alike who work over you or work under you. Your behavior towards them doesn't change. There's not two sets of rules. Rather, we are told here, you are to serve Christ by serving both of them. And so walk in love as Christ has commanded us, by submitting to each other in the fear of God. Think of Jesus with me. He's the perfect example of this. Jesus was, is both a servant and a master. He was the obedient servant that was willing to go to the cross, doing not his own will, but the Father's will for him. And in our servanthood, we imitate him. We imitate that service. Yet he is also now ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he is a master. And so in our, in our overseeing of others, we serve as Christ serves. We master as, as Christ would master. He, Christ understands both sides of this. Because there are times in life when we will be more of a servant, more of an employee. There are times, other times in life we'll be more of a master or a, a boss. Christ understands both of those. He has lived as we do. And now he reigns as the master of both the servant and the boss. One other thing before we close. I wanna, the, the apostles have written many, uh, many books in the Bible and throughout the apostles' writings, they often introduce themselves in a unique way. The apostles were awesome people, great men of God, powerful men of God. And they could have introduced themselves in a pompous way. 
some egotistical way, you know, charting all of their converts and all the churches they've started and all these things. And I, Paul, have done this and this and this and this. But they don't. The way the apostles and the writers of the New Testament epistles most often introduce themselves is very telling. Paul does it in Romans, Galatians, Philippians, and Titus. Peter does it, James does it, Jude does it. In an era when no one wants to be a servant, everyone wants to be the boss. No one wants to be a bond servant. Paul, Peter, James, and Jude, all at the beginning of their books, introduce themselves to their readers as bond servants of Christ. Bond servants of Christ. What were they telling their readers? We're not establishing ourselves as bigger and better than you. We are servants bound to serve Christ. That should be our mindset as well. Whether it's in marriage, whether it's in family, or whether it's at work, we are bond servants of Christ. Therefore, we submit to the Spirit, and we submit to others and serve others for the good of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Let's pray.